Have you heard of the rare condition called Anton syndrome? Anton syndrome. Sufferers of Anton syndrome are blind. They're literally blind. They cannot see. But they're under the illusion that they can see. They sometimes insist rather adamantly that they can see. In other words, people with Anton syndrome are blind to their blindness. Last Sunday, we saw Jesus' disciples had spiritual Anton syndrome. In Mark 8, 17, Jesus asked his disciples, do you have eyes but cannot see? You see, the disciples had been blind to Jesus' identity and his mission. And to make matters worse, they were blind to their blindness. Well, I assume that many of us are like Christ's disciples. We profess that we see Jesus in faith, but our spiritual vision is at best blurry. It's clouded with fear, confusion, doubts, or even amazement. God in his kindness has sent his son, Jesus, to come as a good spiritual optometrist for people like us, people with blurry spiritual vision. So I want you to consider this morning as a spiritual, the sermon this morning as a spiritual eye exam. You may think your vision of Christ and his cross is 2020, fully clear, but Jesus is going to challenge us today with those letters at the bottom of the chart. And we may be surprised by the prescription that is coming our way. So I want to invite you to please turn in your Bibles to Mark 8.22. Mark 8.22, you can find Mark 8.22 on page 895 of the Black Pew Bibles. You're going to really be helped in this sermon if you follow along in your Bibles. Uh, We're going to see that what our eyes need is the nourishment from one of Mark's famous sandwiches. Uh, Mark 8.22 to 10.52 is what we're covering today, and it's a hefty, thick, juicy club sandwich for us to enjoy. Uh, I hope you've been chewing on this passage throughout the week, uh, because we're going to be only taking large bites today. Uh, We're not going to be able to enjoy all the different parts, but see how they come together. I want to orient you to this sandwich that we're about to consume right quick. Before we get to it, the two pieces of bread on the top and the bottom are Jesus's healing of a blind man. So we see the first healing in 8, 22 through 26, and then the bottom half, the, the, the other piece of bread is 10, 46 to 52. You can even be looking at that right now. And then in between these two pieces of bread, there's three spiritual pieces of meat. That's why I said this is a club sandwich. Um, in chapters 8, 9, and 10, Jesus tells his disciples that he's going to Jerusalem to, to die, to suffer, to die, and to be raised. So these three passion predictions function as the, the meat of the sandwich, if you will, the turkey, ham, and bacon. That's what a club sandwich is. Anyways, this, this meat is key to both seeing Jesus clearly 
and following him truly. We're going to have to be able to digest this meat if we're going to see Jesus clearly and follow him truly. That's what I want us to see today in Mark 8 through 10. To follow Jesus truly, you must see him clearly. To follow Jesus truly, you must see him clearly. Let's attack this sandwich in three steps. Step one, see and follow in suffering. Step two, see and follow in humility. Step three, see and follow in faith. If you didn't catch those, we'll come back to them, but essentially it's in suffering, in humility, and in faith. Suffering, in humility, and in faith. First, let's see and follow Jesus in suffering. We see this in 8.22 through 9.29. Listen now as I read 8.22 through 26 and consider what's going on with this healing. Is Jesus losing a little of his mojo or what's going on? They came to Bethsaida. That's Jesus and the disciples. They brought a blind man to him and begged him, begged Jesus to touch him. Jesus took the blind man by the hand and brought him out of the village. Spitting on his eyes and laying his hands on him, Jesus asked him, do you see anything? He looked up and said, uh, I see people. They look like trees walking. Again, Jesus placed his hands on the man's eyes. The man looked intently and his sight was restored and he saw everything clearly. Then Jesus sent him home saying, don't even go into the village. First, I just want you to notice Jesus's compassion on the suffering man. Jesus is a busy guy, but he takes the man literally by the hand and leads him out of the village. I don't know what's going on with Jesus spitting in his eyes, um, but I, he wasn't mocking him or demeaning him in any way. He was healing him. But what makes this healing different from what we've seen in Jesus' healing so far? It takes him two tries, right? Was Jesus losing his touch? Was this an especially hard case of blindness? I don't think so. Here, at the very beginning of our passage this morning, we see something that really happened. Here's a real-life healing, but it is a paradigm. It is an illustration of where we've been and where we're going on the road of discipleship with Jesus. It's an illustration of of what Jesus is going to be doing with his disciples. Back in Mark 8, uh, when they were in the boat, which we talked about last week, Jesus' disciples were blind to Jesus and his, his identity, his sufficiency. Remember, they're all worried about how much bread they have. Jesus is like, hello. Jesus is about to give his disciples sight, though, at least partial sight. So listen to Mark 8, 27 through 30. Jesus went out with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi, and on the road, he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? They answered him, some say John the Baptist, others Elijah, still others, one of the prophets. But you, he asked them, who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, you are the Messiah. Jesus strictly warned them to tell no one about him. Well, consider that these disciples had seen Jesus do things that only God can do, 
rebuked the wind and the waves, and they obeyed, healed the sick, cast out demons, raised the dead, feed thousands from meager portions of bread and fish. And yet back in Mark 4:41, Jesus' disciples were confused. They didn't have faith. They're like, who is this guy? Who is this? So here in Mark 8:29, Jesus turns their question back at them. But you, he asked them, who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, you are the Messiah. Peter's speaking as the representative of the disciples here, and he confesses that Jesus is the Messiah, the King, the Anointed One, King of the nations, the King of Israel. So, okay, do the disciples finally have eyes to see? Their hard hearts melted away uh, into faith. Do they finally get it? Well, let's keep reading, because we're about to see that Jesus still has work to do with this bunch. He is about to rain a cold shower on their messianic expectations. So listen to Mark 8, 31 through 33. Then Jesus began to teach them that it was necessary for the Son of Man to suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, chief priests and scribes, be killed and rise after three days. He spoke openly about this. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning around and looking at his disciples, Jesus rebuked Peter and said, get behind me, Satan. You are not thinking about God's concerns, but human concerns. Peter isn't a fan of the plan. This road that includes suffering and death doesn't sound good to Peter. What we're seeing is that Peter's vision and the vision of the disciples is still blurry. Uh, they're like that blind man in Beth Bethsaida after Jesus had spit in his eyes but hadn't brought him to full, clear vision. That's, Jesus, that's Peter and the disciples. Because Peter and the disciples found it inconceivable that the Messiah would have to suffer. He thinks it's going to all be honor and glory and victory for them. So what does Peter do? He rebukes the Messiah. But Jesus returns Peter's serve. Jesus rebukes Peter and the disciples for their partial vision, for their still have some hard hearts. Their vision is off because, as we see there in Verse 33, their priorities are off. They're, they're focused on human concerns rather than God's concerns. And you might think, like, man, Jesus is pretty intense, calling Peter Satan. But consider what Peter was suggesting, that the Messiah's way, his purpose for coming, was not the right way. And to get in the way of Christ and what is necessary for the Son of Man to do to ransom sinners is satanic. Sat Satan would love nothing more than for Christ here to take the easy road, the road of honor and glory in the short term. Well, Jesus will then talk about suffering and the cost of discipleship in 30, verses 34 through 38. 
But then Jesus gives the following promise in chapter 9, verse 1. He said to them, Jesus is still speaking to his disciples, truly I tell you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God come in power. Now on, on the road marked with suffering and death and crosses, we have this promise for some of the disciples of the kingdom of God coming in power. And three of the disciples are going to get a glimpse of this just like six days later in uh, the transfiguration, which you can see in 9, 2 through 13. Once again, I just, I'm going to summarize what we see there on the mountain and what Peter and James specifically see and what they hear. So the three disciples, what do they see and what do they hear and how, does, how is this going to help them with their spiritual vision in order to go the way of Jesus, following him faithfully? First, the disciples see Jesus's glory, right? Jesus's outward appearance is changed before them to reflect the inward glory that has been with Jesus all along. It's like they see Jesus for who he truly is. Uh, Mark's very brief. We would love more details here. But it's like, yeah, he was, he was shining bright. His clothes were like brighter than the sun. And then you have, they see the cloud coming down from heaven, reminding us of Mount Sinai, the very presence of God himself coming down on the top of the mountain. Uh, we have Moses and Elijah there. Uh, what's going on with this uh, transfiguration of Jesus? It's like, a, it's like a preview or a trailer of coming attractions. Jesus is going to be glorified after he goes the way of the cross and the resurrection, which he has just talked to his disciples about. Uh, this is, this is the, fut the eternal future for, for Christ, his, his glory. You know, you'd think that this, it's not a vision, what they see would help the disciples with their spiritual vision. And, and not only do they see this, but they hear a voice from heaven coming down out of the clouds saying, this is my beloved son, listen to him. Jesus on the way down is, is talking about John the Baptist's fate as the second coming of Elijah and how he died and how Jesus, therefore, would follow in that way, going to death and then resurrection. The disciples still are struggling. They're, like, they're discussing among themselves or, que or questioning in their hearts, rather, what does this rising of the dead even mean? When Jesus and these three disciples return uh, to the other disciples at the foot of the mountain, what's waiting them but more unbelief and suffering? So they just got this amazing vision of glory. They return to real life down at the bottom of the mountain. And this father has a son with a demon that the disciples have been unsuccessfully trying to cast out. Apparently, they forgot to pray. Uh, the father asked Jesus in chapter 9, verse 22, this is what the father, the suffering father, imagine a, a son suffering like this. And he comes to Jesus and he says in chapter 9, verse 22, but if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us, Jesus. Jesus said to him, if you can, everything is possible for the one who believes. Immediately, the father of the boy cried out, I do believe. Help my 
unbelief. Once again, we see uh, a real-life example of what it means to see but not see clearly. Like that blind man in Bethsaida, in between, you know, when Jesus spits in his eyes and he sees people, but they look like trees walking, this father, he, can, he, he believes, but not, not quite, doubts are clouding his spiritual vision. But Christian, do you see what he does with his doubts? He knows his vision. His spiritual vision isn't 2020. So he goes to Jesus and he asks for help. Help my unbelief. And Jesus brings full sight. He heals the boy. He displays his power for all to see. You know, I think, as, when, as we think about what it looks like to follow Jesus in the midst of suffering, our first step as followers of King Jesus is to admit that we need help. Suffering, pain, trials cloud our vision, fill us with doubts. We look at ourselves we get drawn inwards in our trials. So Henson family, how are we regularly crying out for help, saying, we believe, but help our unbelief? How are you crying out regularly? I believe, help my unbelief. I wonder if you've ever thought of showing up here on Sunday as a means that we cry that out. Uh, one of the ways we say, I believe, help my unbelief, is by gathering with other believers uh, for worship and to hear his word. And not just these gatherings on Sundays, but in our small groups, in our discipleship relationships, those are expressions of, of crying out, I need help. I need help following Jesus. I often tell people who come into membership here, basically what membership is, is saying, I need help following Jesus. I can't do it on my own. So we come into, come into the church and we ask for help that we might keep our eyes fixed on Jesus because trials, suffering, being consumed with human concerns rather than God's concerns, they make our vision our spiritual vision blurry. Now, we come here each Sunday not to check something off, not to gain merit with God, not to feel good about ourselves, but because we need help. Don't have Anton syndrome and think you don't need help, that you can go at it on your own. I'm not blind. I don't need help. I, I have 20-20 spiritual vision. And friends, we need more than just coming to church and hearing from his word and worshiping him with his people? Uh, how are you throughout the week saying, I believe, help my unbelief? Are you not only preaching the gospel to yourself, but are you, do you have opportunity to preach the gospel to others, particularly in trials, reminding people of why Jesus came to go to the cross for us, 
it is so easy for our spiritual vision to get clouded, to be consumed with these human concerns, to be blind to God's purposes and suffering. So, you know, without a plan to keep our vision sharp, we're going to fail. We're going to be consumed with these human concerns. So what's your plan for this week even to keep your eyes fixed on Jesus, to cry out, I believe, help my unbelief? I know I need help. I know I forget to pray the gospel daily. But one of the means that God has used in my life over my season here is is praying with many of you as I hear you pray the gospel, as we bring our, our needs, our struggles, our suffering to the Lord in dependence and prayer. So, brothers and sisters, let's take advantage that this body is Christ's body, the church, and we can help one another. We can prepare to hear from God's word by reading the text ahead of time, meditating on his word that we might have full spiritual vision Uh, taking advantage of the discussion questions after even the the service in the newsletter, uh, not thinking of this as just a means to to be more righteous or to be good Christians, but an expression of an acknowledgement of the fact that in in our human concerns, in our suffering, we will go spiritually blind. We need, we need help. We need a vision of Jesus if we're going to follow him through suffering. And following Jesus means taking up that instrument of ultimate suffering, which is the cross. After Jesus tells his disciples back in chapter 8 that he's going to the cross, he tells his disciples that if they want to come, if they, if they want him, they got to follow him. They got to go too. They got to take up their cross. Mark 8, 34 says, if anyone wants to follow after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. You know, so often we say like, well, this is the cross I bear. You know, I'm a Blazers fan or um, I, uh, you know, we had a long, long visit from the in-laws. <laughs> this, these are the crosses I bear. But that's not what Jesus is talking about. He's, he's talking about denying ourselves for the sake of following Jesus. When we see the mission of Jesus clearly, we put to death living for our ease, comfort, security, pleasure, rest in order to pursue Christ. It's another great thing to think about together as you, as you gather with one another as, or as you meet up for encouragement, spiritual encouragement to keep your spiritual vision sharp. What does it look like for you to take up your cross and follow Jesus this week, denying yourself? What is following Jesus costing you? What is following Jesus costing you? So often we think we can have the world and Jesus too. But I think Jesus disagrees. If we read Mark 8, 33 through 35. You know, if we follow Jesus on this road of suffering, taking up our cross, it's going to mean great pain today, but great gain in eternal life. Why do we do this? Why, why would anyone choose this, this road? 
This is the way of Christ. This is the way of Jesus. This is the way he goes. And if we want him, we're going to want him more than earthly comfort. A true disciple of Jesus has the eternal vision to know, the eternal vision to know that this life is short. And even if we were to gain the whole world, all the riches that this world has to offer, all its pleasure, all its gain, it would be nothing compared to the eternal reward of knowing Christ. I wonder if you believe that. I wonder if your life demonstrates that you believe that. So Henson, let's look up. This world with its desires and human concerns is passing away. Let's set our eyes on, on Jesus who's heading to the cross. Let's join arms together and follow him, being honest about our doubts, being honest about our struggles and our suffering. And go to Jesus who brings sight so that we might follow him even through suffering. Jesus went this way for the joy set before him, and this is the way that followers of Jesus must go. Well, Jesus isn't done instructing us about what a cross-shaped life looks like, for he goes to the cross not just so that we'll follow him in suffering, but also in humility. And that's what we're going to consider second, see and follow him in humility. All right, so this, this point, we have the second two pieces of meat, and they have the same flavor in one sense. Uh, Jesus predicts his death and resurrection a second time in chapter 9. I wonder if you can find that in chapter 9, when Jesus predicts his death a second time, and then a third time down in chapter 10. Both the, after both of these predictions of Jesus going to the cross and rising again, it's followed by Jesus' teaching on humility. So I, let, I'll just see for yourself. Passion prediction number two is actually in chapter 9, verses 30 through 32, specifically. Chapter 9, verses 30 through 32. And then just go down a few verses. Look at verse 35. Sitting down, he called the 12 and said to them, if anyone wants to be first, he must be last and the servant of all. And then you got a whole bunch more text. Uh, before we get to chapter 10, verses 32 through 34, where Jesus predicts his death and resurrection a third time. And then you look down what comes after that. In verses 43 through 44, I wonder if this sounds familiar. For whoever wants to become great among you will be your servant, and whoever wants to be first among you will be a slave to all. This is a lot of text, but I think the, the drumbeat the, the flavor that comes out of these passion predictions is Jesus' teaching on radical humility. It was necessary for Jesus to humble himself, taking the form of a servant himself for our ransom at the cross. But he doesn't just humble himself so that we might know this salvation and not respond in any way, just be like, oh, thanks, Jesus, for humbling yourself for me. No, he humbles himself to show us that this too is the way we must go. Isn't that what's flowing out of the passion predictions, passion prediction two and three that you see? So let's look at some of these texts just briefly. We won't have time to, to read them, but what, is it, what does it look like to follow Jesus on the road of humility? 
What does it look like to follow Jesus on the road of humility? Just got four quick things as we walk through this text. One, it looks like serving the needy. Following Jesus on the road of humility looks like serving the needy. Look at uh, chapter 9, verse 37. So, you know, right after Jesus predicts his death and resurrection, like how he's going to humble himself for, for the salvation of them, they start arguing with them which one of them is the greatest. Jesus takes a child in his arms and says in 937, whoever welcomes one little child such as this in my name welcomes me. And whoever welcomes me does not welcome me, but him who sent me. Who have you been welcoming lately? Who have you been welcoming lately? If you're on the humble road with Jesus, you will welcome the forgotten, the insignificant, those who are of little importance in the world's eyes. They're not insignificant. They're not forgotten to Jesus. So what does it look like for you to serve the people who are of little value in the eyes of this world or even in the eyes of this church who aren't great or gifted or able to return the favor? I've mentioned this at least once recently before to you all, uh, how encouraged I am by how I see this church excelling and welcoming the needy. The way that you all serve and volunteer in children's ministry, the way that you reach out to the shut-ins in our church, the way that you come around one another when there is a particular crisis or trial. Every time I see you sacrifice your comfort, uh, your energy, your time for the sake of serving the least of these, I see something about, I see something of what Jesus is like. It, it gives me a vision, a greater vision of Christ and his love and his compassion. Not seeking great things for yourselves, but seeking to serve in his name because you know how you have been served. So keep up the good work. Keep on welcoming the insignificant in the eyes of this world and even in, this, in the eyes of this church when we are, are filled with pride. We demonstrate we're on the road with Jesus of humility when we serve the needy who are often overlooked, like children were tended to be overlooked in Jesus' day in the ancient Near Eastern culture. Number two, following Jesus on the road of humility looks like taking radical action to put to death your sin. Taking radical action against sin. This is what we see in verses 42 of 50 of chapter 9. If, if you're ultimately serving yourself, you know, you're living kind of a, a proud, self-sufficient life, you're going to think your sin is really not that big of a deal. You're going to look around at other people and be like, yeah, actually, I'm, I'm doing okay. But brothers and sisters, I think what we see here in these verses, as you look at these verses here, we may need to lose some body parts if we're going to follow Jesus faithfully in humility. Of course, not literally. Jesus is using hyperbole here. Don't misunderstand. But humility, Jesus is saying, is requ requires that we go to war 
and not let up as we fight the sins of the flesh that seek to make us their slave. Being a slave of Jesus requires us to humble ourselves and to ask for help as we fight lust, greed, anger, and more. So what does it look like for you to humbly ask for help as you fight sin? Again, this is why God gives us the church. Are you taking advantage of it, his body here on earth, as we are filled with the spirit and we seek to help one another walk in purity, faithfulness, and humility? You know, our sin wants nothing more than to make us miserable slaves of, of the sin. But followers of Jesus travel light on the road, confessing their sin to one another, reminding one another of how it was necessary for Jesus to go to the cross that we might know what it means to walk in freedom from the slavery of sin. Number three, Following Jesus on the road of humility looks like taking a humble view of marriage. Looks like taking a humble view of marriage. Look at 10, 1 through 12. Uh, the Pharisees wanted to know the, Jesus' interpretation of the rules regarding divorce. You see that in verse 2. Jesus calls them out for their hardness of heart. He says, you're missing the point of marriage altogether. God created marriage. This is something that he did. Verse 9. So he's confronting the Pharisees and those who listen that marriage is not about us. It's not about you. Marriage is to be in service of God. You know, if you ask anybody in this room who's been married for more than a few hours, you'll know that a thriving marriage requires humility, humble, soft-hearted service towards one another. And so if you are married or you'd like to be, how do we need to submit to God's purposes, his greater purposes for marriage, rather than seeking to make marriage about fulfilling our desires and our hopes and dreams? Number four, following Jesus on the road of humility, finally, means recognizing your need. Look at chapter 10, verses 13 through 22. Jesus is going to use little children again as an example of what it means to receive the kingdom of God. Do you see that in verse 15? Jesus says, truly, I tell you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. The, the children are an illustration of what it means to humbly recognize their, their need, right? Children have no bones about saying, like, I want this. <laughs> um, this is in great contrast with how the rich man comes. Uh, to Jesus in chapter 10, verse 17. So this, this rich man wants a good thing. He wants to inherit eternal life. So he's asking, how, how do I do this? How do I gain this? But the rich man doesn't come with neediness. He comes traveling with lots of possessions and a good track record, according to himself, of keeping God's law. See that in verse 20. But Jesus says that this rich man is lacking one thing. Essentially, a willingness to humble himself like a child and recognize his own need. He wasn't willing to let go of his possessions 
and his good track record of law keeping to receive the kingdom of God in humility like a child. Jesus calls us to walk with him on the road of humility, but that is going to require a desperate acknowledgement of our need of him. We're going to have to be like little babies who reach for their mother. More possessions, proud law-keeping are not going to help us on this journey, this humble journey of following Christ. In fact, those things will weigh you down. They'll make it very difficult if you are holding tightly on to the things of this world. So, four ways that I think it looks like, according to Jesus, to follow him on the road of humility. How are we doing? Are you following Jesus on the road of humility? You know, if you were to ask your spouse or a close friend or even your parents, or you could ask your kids, am I humble? What would they say? You humble enough to ask that question? Am I humble? And how do you think I could grow in greater humility? You know, I, if I'm honest, I was just thinking the other day, um, wow, a lot of people I know are really arrogant. None of you, don't worry. No, it was. <laughs> um, I was like, man, a lot of people, uh, I, know, I just noticed how often uh, people are, just seem kind of obsessed with themselves, not really listening to other people. They're always just kind of thinking on what they're going to say. Um, they always think they're right in different like arguments or discussions. Like they're always right, according to them. They can be like condescending towards other people at times. Uh, they're, they're frequently talking about themselves. I'm like, man, I just, I seem to know a lot of arrogant people. Then it hit me. What kind of people are most annoyed by arrogance? I think it's arrogant people themselves. I see my pride in others, and it, it bothers me. It's kind of like the dynamic if you're a parent, and you see your kid doing the very, making the very mistakes that you make, and you're just like, you get a little more angry because you recognize, yeah, I do that. Maybe I should ask the Lord, maybe we should ask the Lord for spiritual eyes to see our own pride rather than for eyes to see everyone else's pride. Proud people are bothered by pride in others. The Bible says that God opposes the proud ultimately, but the picture that we see here of Jesus in chapters 9 and 10 is patience with his proud disciples. Do you see how, I mean, he's talking about going to the cross in humility. And then the disciples constantly talk about like, which one of them's the greatest? James and John are like, hey, can we sit at your right hand and left hand in glory? Jesus just patiently teaches them about the road of humility. And then Jesus shows the way. He doesn't, he doesn't fly off the handle at them for their arrogance. Now, the secret to following Jesus on the road of humility is not beating yourself up for your pride. You're like, oh, I'm so, I'm so proud, man. Getting down on yourself, flagellating yourself for all 
the evidences of pride in your life. Actually, that would be another manifestation of pride. You're just obsessed with yourself. I know that feeling. The secret to following Jesus on the road of humility is to see Jesus, to see our humble king, who as Mark 10, 45 says, for even the son of man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. You know, we all enjoy being served. But if the son of man, who holds all authority in heaven and on earth, uh, who could heal the blind, who is glorified on the mountain of transfiguration and knew that he was the beloved son who everyone should listen to. If the, this one who, who raises the dead, if he can come and serve like this, if he can serve us like this, if he goes to the cross, if he takes the road of humility to serve us and to give his life as a ransom for many, how can we not respond by humbly serving ourselves? Not serving ourselves, but serving his body, the church. Serving others in need. Now, Jesus is God. And yet he humbled himself to take the form of a servant. He came not to be served. He came to serve by giving his life as a ransom for many. And I hope that you Find yourself a part of that many today. I pray that you will join us in following Jesus on the road of humility by humbling yourself, turning from your sin, and trusting that Jesus alone is the ransom that you need. Don't be too proud to talk to someone before you leave today about what it would mean to follow Jesus on this road of humility with him. You know, if we're going to follow Jesus on the road of suffering and humility, you're going to need to be able to see with eyes of faith. See, God's going to have to reveal your own pride to you. And that brings us to our third and final point See and follow in faith. Look at chapter 10, verses 46 through 52. I'm not going to read this, this text, but I'd encourage you to read it later. I'm, let's look at it together, though. The people of Bethsaida, back in chapter 8, just to catch us up, brought an unnamed blind man to Jesus and begged Jesus to heal him. Remember that, where we started? Here in chapter 10, Jericho isn't so kind to this blind man. Uh, the, the people of Jericho essentially say, shut up already with all your hollering to this blind man. Who is this guy calling out to this well-known teacher? Isn't it remarkable that 2,000 years later, we know his name and we know his father's name? Uh, we know the name of this poor beggar who sat on the road outside Jericho much like the people who sit begging on the sides of the road here, even in our city today. This beggar's name is Bartimaeus. <clears throat> She's with dad now. 
good. <laughs> the most amazing thing about Bartimaeus is not who he is, but he knows who Jesus is. Twice, Bartimaeus calls out to Jesus, calling him the son of David. Uh, this is the only time that we're going to see this title in the Gospel of Mark. Jesus is on the final leg of his journey to the city of David, and blind Bartimaeus has spiritual eyes to see that Jerusalem's promised son and king approaches. What does Bartimaeus want from the promised son of David? Let's say in verse 47, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And again in verse 48, have mercy on me, son of David. Jesus stops. Bartimaeus is called. He throws off his cloak, jumps up, comes to Jesus. And Jesus has a question for Bartimaeus. What do you want me to do for you? What do you want me to do for you? Which seems like kind of a silly question, if we're honest, right? It's like, uh, come on, isn't it obvious? I'm blind, so there's that. <laughs> but this blind man knows who Jesus is, Jesus, son of David, and now he is faced with a question that causes him to reflect on his need. Rabboni, the blind man said to him, I want to see. I want to see. Jesus doesn't take him outside the village. He doesn't spit in his eyes, or Mark doesn't even tell us if he touches him on the shoulder. Jesus simply says, go, your faith has saved you. Here we have a picture of clear spiritual vision in Bartimaeus, of true faith. This is true 2020 vision. Are you like Bartimaeus? Can you see Jesus with eyes of faith today? What does faith see? What does faith see that suffering that clouds our vision and pride cannot? Faith sees the suffering, the humility, and the mercy of the cross as our only hope. Faith sees our greatest need. Apart from Christ, we are blind, we are poor, we are sinners, rightly under the wrath of God. Apart from God's mercy, we deserve nothing but to sit in the dust. The cross and resurrection of Christ has come to meet our greatest need. Faith sees and cries out to Jesus. Faith doesn't let others or our own doubts discourage us, but faith is persistent and bold in crying out to Jesus. And praise God, he has answered our cries. Faith wants to see. Faith knows what it needs. Eyes to see Jesus spiritually and to follow him on the way. You will only see Jesus clearly when you see the necessity of what he has come to do for you. Otherwise, he'll just be another religious teacher. Just be another leader of a system of beliefs. But Jesus came to die and rise again. He's come to ransom sinners who need ransoming, and that is us. Finally, faith sees the road that we must walk 
and who we must follow. Do you see how this ends in verse 52? Immediately, he could see. And he began to follow Jesus on the road. You know, Jesus had told many others before that he healed, you know, go home, don't tell anybody. You know, he did tell the demoniac and the Gerasenes, you know, remember with the pigs? He's like, go and tell how the Lord has had mercy on you. But here we have something different. And I think it's no accident. Jesus has told his disciples that they must take up their cross and follow him. And now we see formerly blind Bartimaeus doing just that. A true picture of faith. He once was lost, but now is found. He was blind, but now he can see. Bartimaeus seems to have left his cloak behind, but I think what he's gained as well better. What would it mean for you to throw off that cloak that you have been clutching in the dust and to jump up and follow Jesus today in faith? Only those who see Jesus clearly will follow him truly. So who is he to you? Who is Jesus to you? Is he your king? Your Messiah? And what would you like him to do for you? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we confess that if we're honest, we'd kind of like you to make us king. We'd kind of like some glory, some honor, some success, some riches, some pleasure, some ease and comfort and security for this life. We'd like things not to be so hard. But Lord, we pray that you would open our eyes so that we can truly see, so that we can see our great need and that we would come with all our neediness to you crying, we believe, help our unbelief, and we pray that you would bring healing. Give us true sight for your son Jesus and his mission to ransom sinners like us. Uh, Lord, help us, Father, to follow you truly. And we pray all this in Christ's name.